A beautiful rendition of the song on Awn War, performed by the Shanno singer Salogni Canavoin. Traditional Shanno songs in the Irish language are an important part of Irish social and cultural history. In centuries gone by, the collectors who transcribed and preserved Irish music, like Shanno songs, recognised this and worked to preserve this vital part of our heritage. We're going to look today at one particular collection, the Reverend Daniel J. Murphy Archive, which contains around 1,200 of these songs. The collection is named for Daniel Murphy from Sligo, who was an emigrant to the United States. Along with another emigrant, J.J. Lyons from Galway, he spent decades from the 1880s to the 1930s transcribing folklore and songs from his fellow countrymen and women all around Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. To talk about it, I'm joined now by Dr. Deirdre Canila, who this week presented her research in a keynote lecture to the Irish Embassy in the USA. Deirdre, you're very welcome to The History Show. Thank you very much, Miles. Give us a sense, first of all, of the context that uh, the Reverend Dan Murphy was working in, because it seems a little bit strange, but there were, in fact, there was a huge amount of Irish speakers in the 1890s in America, and a good portion of those were in Pennsylvania. That's right, yes. The estimate is that at the time, in 1890 or so, that there were 400,000 Irish speakers in America and that 40,000 of those were in Pennsylvania, uh, many of them in Philadelphia itself, but also, of course, up in the anthracite region of northeastern Pennsylvania. And it's in those two places that uh, Father Murphy was working. He had an uncle who was a priest in the anthracite region for 30 years, from about the mid-1860s right up to his death in 1897. His name was Father Thomas Marin. And so it would appear that... Father Marin had encouraged Dan, perhaps even paid for his education and training in the seminary. And Dan emigrated from Sligo to Philadelphia and trained as a priest there. Now, we'll talk a lot about Dan Murphy, but uh, J.J. Lyons from Glenamady in, in County Galway. I don't think we know quite as much about him, do we? No, not quite. He's uh, rather enigmatic for the moment. Um, of course, we're reliant on things like passenger lists and census records, etc., to track down some of these individuals unless they leave traces themselves. And JJ left uh, manuscripts he was collecting before Dan and then t- they sort of joined forces then when they met. But JJ would have been in Stonetown National School in Glenamady and it would appear that his teacher there would have been instructing them in Irish uh, literacy. So uh, he was literate in both Irish and English by the time he got to the States and that would have been unusual really. And we have, I guess, maybe Archbishop McHale in Tume to uh, thank perhaps for the schools throughout his diocese being able to deviate a bit and enable people from Galway and Mayo to acquire literacy in their native language. 
And um, Father Dan Murphy was working in one of the poorer parts of Philadelphia. There seems to be a suggestion that he may have been a bad boy at one stage, that he might have been <laughs> a little bit recalcitrant. Yes, uh, the family wondered if perhaps he had blotted his copybook was the phrase that was used because he did have a curacy, it would appear, all through the 1890s in downtown Philadelphia and had Irish-speaking parishioners there from whom he was collecting songs. But then around 1902 or so, he just goes off grid. And apart from these letters, etc., where we see uh, the postmarks on the various addresses of where he was living that tell us he was living in the poorer parts of Philadelphia, he doesn't appear to have had a parish either all through that time. So a bit of mystery there for the moment. Uh, but he was active nonetheless right up until his death in 1935 and towards the end of his life, rather than travelling around collecting songs from people, he turned his attention to the materials held in libraries locally uh, in Villanova, for instance, and Irish language manuscripts that had been brought over by immigrants uh, through the years, sometimes producing copies of them to ship to fellow scholars uh, who could then uh, study them. Now, it's an amazing archive, 1,200 songs. I mean, it's up there with with Bunting, with Petrie, probably comparable with Chief O'Neill in Chicago, about 1,800 traditional tunes there. But it's been under the radar, really. How did you find out about it? How did you discover it? So the reason he was under the radar compared with the likes of Petrie and Bunting and Chief O'Neill that you've mentioned, they all published. And Father Murphy really couldn't have hoped to be able to fund a publication in Irish any major publication, there wouldn't have been a market necessarily for it. They relied instead on newspapers and journals as their avenue to dissemination. And so he himself, toward the end of his life, recognised this fact. And uh, in one of the letters, he referred to himself as Sagarth Gun Umro, a priest of little repute. And it was actually a tribute to a book that had been published at the time called Philly Gun Umro, relating to the Donegal poets, the Rana Ferste poets, written by uh, Joseph McGriana, whose ancestor was living in Audenried as a parishioner of Father Marin, the uncle. And so we're connecting the different generations that were emigrating back to the, well, the Irish-speaking communities indeed. And, and now, of course, places like Sligo, where they don't have so much Irish now, but they had a Gaeltacht up until the 1950s. And so regardless of what the language capacities are today, it's still it's a shared inheritance and the value now for us is to connect all of these communities, vast majority of them stretching all along the western seaboard from Donegal down to Kerry and connect them with their history on both sides of the Atlantic. All of these projects have a, an interesting starting point. Your starting point was 18 verses of a song you came across on the Aran Islands. <laughs> That's right. I was researching two projects. One was a book of songs composed in the Aran Islands, and I was always on the lookout for more of them. And uh, I was also researching music collectors and the practice of music collecting. And so those questions and the hunt for those uh, were in the back of my mind when I encountered in the parochial house in Kilronan a transcription of a song and it had been written out from a newspaper but the original transcription when somebody sat down with the singer had been produced by Father Murphy in Philadelphia from a parishioner living four blocks away Thomas O'Clocherta from Letzerkala in Connemara and there were 18 verses of a song about proselytisation uh, during the famine composed by Seamus O'Crochud in Kilivri, my own uh, village in Aran. 
So I wondered, I th- thought, who's this singer who could carry all those verses across the ocean and continue to maintain them for 40 years in America? And then who's this other guy, this priest who's literate in Irish enough to transcribe what's quite a complicated song? You know, it's, it's not light reading in any way. And then for two years, I guess, anytime I met people who might have been experts in the coal mining history in, in America or Pennsylvania or libraries and archivists, etc., I asked everybody, do you ever hear of Donalo Morohu? And I never thought to ask about Dan Murphy because the name was far too common and I thought he was so Gaelic. I didn't expect maybe the, the English name to have been uh, attached to it, but Long story short, I'd moved to Galway to begin working on the Aaron Songs project and the archivist there caught wind of my interest in this figure and said, we have those Reverend Murphy papers. They had arrived in Galway in 1936, but accession histories wouldn't have been then what they are today. And uh, it just was forgotten about because the one person who knew and understood it, uh, Thomas Somale, died. Uh, he died 18 months later. So it just uh, faded from memory. And, and while there were uh, people uh, consulting it from time to time and aware of it, it's a bit like the blind man and the elephant. They they didn't quite know all of what they were looking at. Whereas I had the story and I was searching for the materials and it just goes to show when you give people time to research, uh, that's when discoveries can, can be made. And that was a very exciting day in the uh, archive, opening up the box and uh, I got a land, as the expression goes. It was breathtaking, literally, and I just couldn't believe the scale of it. So you're right, it is like Chief O'Neill's story. They're contemporary, actually. They started around 1884. Chief O'Neill stopped then for personal reasons. He had a lot of tragedy in his life. But uh, Murphy kept going, as I say, right up to his death. And then he and his uh, collaborators in Philadelphia, it's in the wake of the Wall Street crash. It's the Great Depression in the 30s. What are they going to do with these manuscripts? What's their fate? Where are they going to end up? And I suppose the hope was that in Ireland, in Galway, where there were policies around Irish language uh, in the university there, that they felt that was going to be a good home for it. Now, you mentioned uh, Thomas O'Malley. Uh, he was an Irish scholar professor who worked at University College Galway, as it was uh, called in, in his time. He made wax cylinder recordings of Shando songs while he was there. Now, we're going to play part of a recording you've highlighted for us from 1930. Tell us a little bit about this recording. Yes, so Thomas Somala was collecting songs from 1904 onwards at the latest. And then when the technology became available, he moved from manuscript to edaphone recording. And he was using this machine in the university on the campus in Galway and and, uh, possibly uh, in fieldwork as well, because he documented the dialects of Irish that were spoken throughout Connacht and in County Clare. So every county west of the Shannon. And in the late 20s and 1930 or so, there was a German linguist called Wilhelm Dögen who asked Thomas to help him with his big linguistic project. And Thomas was the one to organise and conduct the recordings that were made on the campus in Galway in September 1930. So the woman you're going to hear is Breeds Niwale. She was uh, Mrs. Ginnelly and she was from Rustech outside Westport in County Mayo. And she sings a song associated with uh, County Mayo called Onau Niwol. And the Reverend Murphy collection has the same song, but versions from uh, more counties uh, because they're from Galway, Mayo and Sligo as well. So fantastic to be able to look at the different versions across time and space. 
Now, this was recorded in 1930, so listeners can expect some hiss. But let's hear an excerpt. Uh, this is Brigny Walia from County Mayo and her rendition of On Owen Moor. <laughs> In English, the lyrics of that song, Deirdre, go Farewell, Owen Moore River, Alas, that I am not beside you tonight. Do, do many of these Shando songs explore themes of emigration and, and missing home, particularly the ones that the likes of Murphy would have collected in America? Yes, we'd certainly expect to find uh, songs of home and of uh, migration in the collection. But in truth, there are songs about everything under the sun in the collection. It did who grugastoidida, as we say. And hopefully we might find songs that were uh, perhaps more contemporary, maybe even composed in America as well, describing the experiences there. There is one song that was collected from a young man from Clare Galway called Duvu Nabrothi, the blackening of the potatoes. And while you'd imagine that's about the famine, really it's a song about leaving home just during the famine. So it can vary hugely in terms of the descriptive nature of uh, the lyrics, but there's a, a wider story to be told about uh, how the song served a purpose in the singers' lives and how it gave them a sense of identity and just even in themselves personally and that this was the wealth that they carried with them when they had nothing else other than the clothes on their backs. Now you're talking about 1200 uh, in the Murphy archive. I'm sure there's a few songs in there about the Molly Maguires uh, talking about Pennsylvania anthracite. Um, Now I imagine also that depending on where the singer is from there would be differences in the dialect of the Irish language that's used. Can you use the material in the Murphy collection to trace what region each song came from or or a version of of a a song or are there multiple versions essentially of the same song in different dialects in the collection? Uh, Yes is the answer and uh, sometimes even up to 20 versions depending on how common the song was. For instance, in Shand the it's a short, playful song. There, there are up to 20 of that one. And around the dialect question, it's quite interesting because Irish wasn't standardised at the time. And so for spelling, there, there would be disputes over how to spell words to faithfully represent how someone had enunciated the lyrics. Father Murphy and uh, JJ Lyons had discussions about this and they would criticise other collectors as well who weren't quite up to their standards. And the different dialects, while you can learn a lot from how maybe the songs are written and the words are spelled, but in fact, Murphy and Lyons noted the identity of the singers quite clearly and in detail. So, for instance, the women's maiden names are given as well as their married names. The native parishes, sometimes the native townlands in Donegal, for instance, are given because there might be several Bridget O'Donnells in the locality. And just as we do today to pinpoint somebody and, and say, Kaleshu and name where they're coming from, uh, that level of detail is provided for. And that's what makes the collection particularly valuable because you mentioned the Molly Maguires there to date when trying to figure out who were some of the Irish people that became embroiled in that whole saga, all you were getting were maybe uh, lists of surnames and then guessing at their localities and origins in Donegal. But this collection, 
which dates from the 1880s onwards, except these are people who had been born uh, before and during the famine, who were witnesses to those times. We can tell you who they are, where they're from, their native uh, townlands and everything. So it's the detail. And that's the uh, key lesson for historians everywhere is that, and it's something Guy Biner would have written about in uh, Remembering the Year of the French, is the value of the folkloric material. Once you understand its function in society and the relationship with memory and how it's being marshaled, it is possible to glean valuable uh, information that, that's reliable as well. It can be tested. And that's uh, one of the selling points, I guess, for this particular collection. It's not a value just to song and music scholars. It's a value to anybody, whether it's uh, labour history or genealogy. The list is endless. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned the collection. Apparently, it still hasn't been properly catalogued. Obviously, it didn't help that uh, Thomas Amalia was dead within 18 months of the collection arriving in, in Galway. But what finally do you hope to see happen to this wonderful collection? Well, to date, what has happened is, I guess I was able to contextualise it in uh, December of 2012. And then the next step thereafter was the collection has been listed. The uh, list itself, it's like a phone book of song because it's just song after song after song. And as I say, that's not the full catalogue because the manuscripts are quite brittle and uh, I'm loath to handle them to be leaving sort of bits of paper on the, on the desk as, as you lift them up. But uh, it makes more sense to digitise them promptly as a preservation measure and also then to generate access uh, to them. And then, you know, to for cataloguing as well to take place. So really, it's because of the, the nature of the materials is places certain demands on how we would proceed with uh, developing it. But ideally, the materials would be scanned to a high quality and then the research to connect them can begin. And that needs to happen on both sides of the Atlantic. There's lots of knowledge to be uh, collected around the biographies of all those 450 odd singers, more women than men, actually, which uh, reflects maybe how the women might have been forgotten about by some collectors. Maybe you've a lot of male collectors coming along, but uh, of course, a priest would have a certain license maybe to uh, be in the presence of uh, either sex and it mightn't matter so much. Also, the authority of a priest, you couldn't refuse him, maybe. So we're hoping to start mapping who those people are and uh, making the connections. To date, I have one family that I've, I've tracked down from Paula Thomas in Eris in County Mayo, who emigrated via the Chuke emigration scheme out of Black Sod uh, over to Centralia in Pennsylvania. But then the family following work ended up in Philadelphia and that's where they met Father Dan. And I was able to do that because of the uh, Black Sod Bay Emigration Sailings database that was generated and put online by the wonderful Onad Yervala in Onachlim uh, in Mayo. So that's a groundswell in that that was local people that uh, did that work of history, that project themselves, and just a, an enabler then for those of us maybe working sometimes in university sectors, sometimes outside of them. And of course, digitization of this collection would make it available to everybody, just as the, the Black Sod Bay project is as well. My guest is Dr. Deirdre Nicunila. Deirdre, many thanks indeed for joining us to talk about this fascinating archive collection on The History Show. Margaret 
sin Gan ol nasir.